March 3rd, 2019, and this is episode 390 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. And for new customers, use coupon code LTB half off. That's one word, LTB half off, to save 50% on your first purchase. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. And Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Thanks to all the hosts and you listeners for sitting in on today's session. This time we'll be completing our conversation on recent and coming soon innovations within the Bitcoin Lightning Network, or Lightning as it's better known. There's a great article over at theblockcrypto.com on recent and near-term advancements in Lightning, and for the rest of this article and the prior one, if I say quote, I'll be quoting from that article, which is linked in the show notes. So we kick off today with something that is uh, less of like a fundamental technical innovation and more a question of how do you make decisions in a decentralized fashion when you're starting something that's hard to decentralize. <laughs> um, so the, the technology or the idea is called Wombology. Wombology, quote, is a reference to an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where Patrick Starr invents the word to mean big. In the Lightning Network, this means channels are getting bigger. Currently, the Lightning Network has a channel size limit of 0.16 Bitcoin and a payment limit of 0.04 Bitcoin. But as developers gain comfort with the security of their implementation, bits that indicate that a client can expand channel capacity will be available, allowing double opt-in support for much larger channels than were previously possible. So let's just stop there and unpack a little bit about this. Basically, right now in the Lightning Network, you can only make transactions and you can only hold value up to certain size. Andreas, why is that? To discourage people putting too much money into something that was experimental and also trying to do payments that are too big for most routes. So the limit per payment is 4 million Satoshis, 0.04 Bitcoin. And for channel capacity, maximum channel capacity is 16 million Satoshis, 16.7 million Satoshis. And so you can create a channel for 16 million Satoshis and you can transmit the payment to about one quarter of its total capacity at a time in each direction. And that just prevents people from trying to use Lightning today in production for the types of payments that are probably best kept on on-chain transactions and also that they don't put too much money into these experimental clients with hot wallets where you can have losses. So Lightning is a technology that is both so new that it's dangerous, but also mature enough that we actually want people using it in real types of use cases so we can continue to learn about it and discover where we need to really improve the protocol. Is that right? Yeah, but the sweet spot of Lightning isn't in making large payments. We already have a network that's perfectly fine for making large payments. And if you are making large payments, instantaneous isn't that much of a requirement. So, for example, if you buy a car, you don't need to worry about having that settle within seconds or milliseconds. You can wait 30 minutes before you give someone the keys to a car to drive away, right? So, the larger the amount, the longer you can wait for settlements. Lightning isn't competing with on-chain transactions for large amounts. There's no point in doing that because you can easily do those with just a traditional Bitcoin transaction. 
its sweet spot is small payments. And in order to encourage people to use it for small payments and not put too much onto these clients, that, that's why this limit was introduced. So the fact that there's a limit that was introduced, but that limit is one that's going to increase over time, is that a correct assumption or is it should we just sort of always think of Lightning Network is going to be for smaller transactions? And, and as Bitcoin continues, it's likely to go up in value, which means the absolute value in Bitcoin terms would go down to maintain those transactions. Do you see the Lightning Network being used for larger transactions like the traditional Bitcoin network? Eventually, yes. Eventually, there's no reason why you wouldn't hold every part of your, essentially have your entire hot wallet always in Lightning channels. And the only funds that are not in Lightning channels are cold storage funds. And so, yes, I see it eventually having much bigger transactions. It can span the entire range from tiny, tiny, tiny to very big. Okay, so there's a limit now. It's a limit that over as time goes on and as the technology matures and things change is going to increase. And the question is, how do you determine at what rate that should increase and who gets to decide if that should increase? Because in a typical technology system, this would be a decision that's made by the company that's developing the software. They would make the decision and then they'd push it out to everybody else. This is Lightning. So that's not exactly how it happens. So the way Lightning collaboration and interoperability happens is through a series of standards called BOLT, uh, Basics of Lightning Technology. And these are constantly under negotiation. There is the first iteration of BOLT standards is what created today's production Lightning Network and allows three or four different software clients to interoperate very successfully and have common protocols for how they do the scripts, how they do the channels, how they communicate their capabilities and all of these things, as well as what expectations they have. And they have to communicate on all of these details to remain interoperable. So for example, if one client says, the maximum delay I'm going to accept in closing a channel is four days, and the other client is, says, no, the maximal accept is two days. They have to negotiate that. So on the protocol level, there is a degree of negotiation happening, just like many other protocols have negotiation characteristics. When your browser connects to a web server, they negotiate what cryptographic primitives they have for doing their SSL encryption, and they find a common basis. The same thing happens in Lightning. There are some things that are standardized and everybody follows them directly. And there are some things that are up for negotiation. And these are referred to as capabilities or features. And these capabilities are communicated on initial connection with another client. So when your node connects to another node in the Lightning network, it sends a bit mask that is you know, a series of bits that tell the other clients what capabilities your client is willing to support. So for a change like Wombology or any of the other changes that are happening, like, for example, some clients support atomic multipath. Some clients will support Sphinx routing before others. They're going to announce this by setting these feature bits and saying, hey, this is what I can do. What can you do? And then negotiating with the other clients. Yeah, I'm just uh, thinking about, can we draw any parallels to sort of like the way that changes happen in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin block size you know, changes. I know it's not exactly the same because the block size is like the amount of data about transactions and the number of transactions that can happen per unit of time, where this is like how much value can be in a channel. So it's kind of different, but maybe there are some parallels. Yeah, this isn't a consensus rule. So the difficulty with Bitcoin is that everyone has to agree because if 
one party doesn't agree, they can no longer maintain synchronization with the network. They can no longer remain in consensus, especially if the rule has changed in a way that is not backwards compatible. But in Lightning, you know, the scripts are part of the consensus because you need to be able to secure the transactions. Everything else is is up for negotiation. And if some clients don't do big payments and other clients do big payments, it's okay. They can both coexist on the network quite happily. The ones that only do small payments will only do small payments. And the ones that do big payments will need to find others that do big payments so they can actually route to where they need to. But you don't need this rigid lockstep coordination on layer two as you do in layer one, which is one of the benefits. It's one of the reasons why layer two can move much faster in terms of innovation, because you don't need everybody to agree on all of the changes. You can create subsets of the network that have capabilities that other parts of the network don't without disrupting anyone. A quick point of clarification, is Wombology or are these settings something that are defined by the wallet maker? Or is this something that I as an individual would define for myself using the wallet as the way to express that preference? Both. There are defaults which are set in the clients, but you can turn on or off different capabilities as well as you can set different limits. Okay. So I can override the 4 million Satoshi maximum payments and I can't make it bigger, but I can make it smaller. And my node will only accept smaller ones. And that's fine. And you can tweak many of the other settings. You can tweak what is the maximum delay for commitment transaction and various other things you can tweak. The full software nodes, things like LND and C-Lightning, are very configurable. These are command line interfaces that you run on a Unix-like system. And you can configure every parameter of them and tell them how to behave on the network, turn things on and turn things off. If you have a Lightning wallet, it's probably a lot less configurable. It probably depends on the node that's not on the wallet itself, a remote node that you're using. And you don't have as much flexibility into how your wallet is going to behave. So for normal users, this really just isn't something that we even need to think about. This is just the way that this is kind of being done in a decentralized fashion, as opposed to there being sort of one definitive, this is the way it is. Yeah, and keep in mind, there's actually much more diversity in software implementations in Lightning than there is in Bitcoin. So there's many more teams and they're working towards interoperability together and they don't have to follow the same strict path. Your average user doesn't need to know about any of these parameters. All they'll notice is that there are some constraints and if you want to send up payments more than 4 million Satoshis, you can't at the moment. But what the average user might notice is that all of these changes are going to be increasing the usability of Lightning and the liquidity in Lightning, especially this one, it seems like. Yes, that's correct. Although, quite honestly, 0.16 Bitcoin is quite a lot of money. So we're talking about four or $500, and that's per channel, right? So you can have a $500 channel at the moment. And now, keep in mind, there are nodes on the Lightning Network today with that limitation that have $100,000 worth of capacity. And they just have it over 400 channels, each channel not more than 0.16. And the the maximum payment being 0.04, that's still a hundred and some dollars. So it's $150 or so at current Bitcoin prices. You know, it's a pretty significant amount that you can make a payment. There aren't really any retail 
offerings, any commercial things that are pushing against that limit. Maybe a bit refill service might let you put up to that much money into a gift card. But most of the things that are being done on Lightning are actually in the opposite direction. They're very, very small payments. So next, we're going to be talking about dual funded channels. Currently, Lightning Network channels can only be funded by a single party. So if, for example, Arjun and Mike want to open a channel between them and Arjun funds the channel with 0.1 Bitcoin, Arjun can send Mike a payment and route through Mike, but can't receive payments directly from or routed through Mike until Mike has funded the transaction in return. Sourcing this inbound capacity for payments is difficult. In Lightning's nascent growth, it often requires offline coordination. In a dual-funded channel, Arjun would fund a channel with 0.1 BTC. If Mike also funds a channel with 0.1 BTC, this comes with a cost. So basically, it's just, to me, it sounds like it's self-explanatory, right? It is, to a certain extent, yeah. Right now, Lightning channels can only be funded by one payer. But they're going to change it so that more than one person can, or more than one payer can contribute to a channel, right? Um, no, that's, that, that's not exactly what's happening. So imagine that Adam and I are sitting across from a table and we have a PVC tube between us, right? And that PVC tube between us is our channel. When we set it up, and let's say this, this is funded entirely in peanuts. So if I set up that PVC tube between me and Adam and I have a bowl full of peanuts on my end, now if I want to send peanuts to Adam, I can send them, but he doesn't have any on his end. So I can send peanuts to him. And once he has some on his end, he can send them back to me. So he can make payments in my direction once he has some peanuts on his end of the pipe. But until he does, I have all the peanuts on my end. He has nothing on his end. There's only one way they can flow. And that's from me to him. So that's what a channel normally looks like. Today, channels are these two-ended things. And you have balance, but you have two balances. You have a local balance, as it's called, and a remote balance. And of course, that's in the eye of the beholder. Local balance is what you have on your side of the channel. And remote balance is what the other party has put on their side of the channel. Today, when I set up a node... If I open channels to other people, I put funds on my end. And if they open channels to me, they put funds on their end. But when we start, all of those channels have zero on one side. They're only funded in one direction. Until payments start flowing through, that means they're unbalanced. They can only flow through in one direction until there's a bit of balance on both sides. Then they can flow in both directions. The proposal here is to be able to set up a channel with another party, but rather than funding it only on your end, or if they're setting it up, they're funding it only on their end. Instead, you negotiate in advance and say, hey, I'm willing to fund it on my end, but only if, if and only if, you fund it on your end. Do we have a deal? Sure. Okay, so I'll put a you know tenth of a Bitcoin on this end, you put a tenth of a Bitcoin on that end. Now we have a channel that can flow in both directions from the very beginning. Okay, so how does that... Does that explain it better? Yes, that explains it great. I appreciate the uh, analogy with the peanuts and the PVC pipe. <laughs> it's just really great. But um, I'm wondering, like, how exactly is that an improvement? Like, what is the benefit of doing this? Well, the benefit of doing this is when you first start, and this is an experience that people have with Lightning, which is a bit challenging, which is, let's say I start a new Lightning wallet, right? And I put some money into it. It's my brand new wallet. In the beginning, I'm not connected to anyone. Okay, so the first thing I need to do is open a channel with someone. 
okay? Um, so I open a channel with some node out there. doesn't matter who it is. And I fund it. Great. Um, now, what that means is my Lightning wallet at this point can only send. And this is a weird experience. People are used to, when they have a Bitcoin wallet, even if it's empty, they can create a receive address and that wallet can receive immediately, even if it's empty. But with a Lightning wallet, if you start it up and you create a channel out and there's no channel in, you can't receive any payments until someone makes a channel in. And how do you make them make a channel in? You beg. Hey, everyone on Twitter, I created my new Lightning node. Could someone open a channel towards me, please? And if you think that's a joke, go on Twitter and you'll find hundreds and hundreds of messages like that. So we're still in the stone age of channel management where you beg others to open channels to you. There are a couple of services online on the Lightning Network where what they'll do is reciprocity. So what you do is you open a channel to them. And if that's well-funded, they'll basically automatically open a channel with equivalent balance back to you, right? It seems like this reduces the amount of trust that's required between multiple parties on the Lightning Network to do this funding because in the current state of things, you actually have to ask people. And if you're going to do one of those reciprocal agreements, that person has to have enough reputation that you're actually going to trust that they're going to open the channel back to you. Whereas this effectively codifies it such that you don't have to trust them. You know that so long as you fund it and they fund it, it's either going to happen or it's not. And either way, you're not exposed to risk, right? Yes. Well, you see, the risk is actually the other way around, which is if I open a channel to you and fund it on my end, I'm exposing myself to risk. And the reason I'm exposing myself to risk by opening a channel with you is if you disappear, if you just drop off the network, I'm going to have my money locked for three days before I can broadcast the time-locked refund unilateral closed transaction that was my Hail Mary refund. It would be much better if when I funded a channel to you, one, you had somewhere to route things, you were willing to fund it back, you were well-connected, your node was reliable, it stayed online, so if anything happened, we could collaboratively close the channel instantaneously rather than me waiting for you to respond and you've gone silent and then I have to wait three days. So anytime you open a channel, when you're opening a channel, you're committing funds into a multisig with another party, and the only out you have is a three-day delayed refund. And so people can very annoyingly tie up your funds in a bunch of channels that leads to nodes that are not well-connected, not interested in routing, and that don't stay online often enough. And then you're wasting your funds tying them up in these channels, which is why people are reluctant to open a channel to you if they don't know if you're still going to be around tomorrow. Now, with the two-ended channel, what you're saying is, I'll commit my money if you commit your money, and you commit your money if I commit my money, and neither of us has to take the first step. It allows you to break the game theory, the conflict of, no, you go first. No, you go first. I don't trust you. No, you go first, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So is it kind of like a smart contract? Well, I mean, yes, so every channel is a smart contract. Every channel is a two of two multisig. The only question is, in the funding transaction, who puts money in? So when you create a channel, what you're doing is you're creating a transaction that pays a normal Bitcoin transaction, that pays from a normal Bitcoin wallet into a two of two multisig, which is the channel. that You own one key and the other person owns the other key. That's how you manage a channel, a two of two multisig, where you each have one key. Um, at the moment, one of the two parties creates that transaction and funds it only one side. 
the double funding of transactions involves us basically coin joining a transaction where we spend inputs from both of our wallets in order to fund a two of two where both of us have balance. It takes a bit more coordination, uh, but it removes some of the risk of you blindly opening channels to other people. It's interesting to think about that the risk that we're talking about here really is one of like uh, inaccessibility of your money, right? Rather than actually losing your money. But that's still really annoying. It is annoying. But, you know, again, like I think back to prior Bitcoin experiences I've faced at earlier times in the technology, and there was never a time where I was going to lose access to my funds for three days if something went wrong, right? It's like it was much more dire than that. Well, there there is kind of because like when the block size was limiting the ability to send transactions, like sometimes you would send something and it would just get stuck and it would never go through. That's the only example I can think of. Yeah, it's exactly the same. No, it's a good point. Yeah. But I think what, what's interesting here is the what we're really talking about is quantifying the time value of money and as, ascribing a risk. It's a measurable risk. It's very measurable. You know, it's like, am I willing to lock up $10 for three days without recourse? Uh, you know, or am I willing to lock up $1,000? Well, how about $100,000? You know, at some levels, you're like, okay, it's not, a, uh, I can lock that amount for three days. But if that money isn't generating a return in terms of routing fees or doing something useful in terms of increasing the capacity of my node, and I just lock it up and make it useless for three days, well, that has a cost. I mean, if it didn't have an opportunity cost and if money didn't have time value, then proof of stake wouldn't work. Essentially, you're staking money into a channel here, and you don't want to do that without having some idea that the other person is at least reciprocating. So it's going to make it easier. Yeah. And as we saw with Wombology, the amount per channel is getting bigger too. Yeah, exactly. So this question becomes more important. Yeah. And really the technical challenge here is is quite simple. At the moment, funding transactions are sourced from a single wallet, meaning that I make a payment into the channel. So I only fund my end. And if somebody else is creating the channel, they only fund their end. In order for us to fund both ends, we actually both have to spend Bitcoin from a wallet in a single transaction that creates the multisig outputs, which means that we have to join inputs together. We have to construct a transaction jointly. Each of us sign one of the inputs and we'll sign it because we know that the outputs of funding are channel. It's basically a coin join. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. So that requires a bit more technical finesse because you have to negotiate that. That requires coordination between the two nodes uh, in order for them to sign this transaction. Andreas, do you think that this is going to be a type of solution that we see becoming more prevalent in the Bitcoin space or the cryptocurrency space as time goes on, where effectively you're... um... Collaboratively signing something with someone else? Thank you. Yes, collaborative. Yeah, exactly. Where you're effectively using CoinJoin as a way to create composite transactions for a purpose that goes beyond privacy. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and again, I, I believe in the long term, we're going to see the vast majority of transactions migrate to lightning channels. And therefore, every transaction you do on chain, you're using the opportunity to bootstrap a channel, fund a channel, increase the funding of a channel, rebalance a channel, whatever you're doing. So yes, we're going to see a lot more complex transactions that involve multiple different steps. 
You know, Stephanie, you brought up earlier that this is kind of like a smart contract. And Andrea said, well, this is a smart contract. And it reminds me that like we haven't actually done a real good kind of comparison episode where we've looked at, say, the Ethereum state of smart contracts and the Bitcoin state of smart contracts and really look at what are kind of the differences between those systems. But I think that'd be a fun thing because like they're all smart contracts, but the terminology has gotten really wrapped up over the last couple of years. Uh, in you know the specific implementation that Ethereum did and Bitcoin smart contract languages and you know the things that are being built with it are getting more and more impressive. Yeah, I think that would be really helpful to do. Yeah, they're both dumb contracts. Ethereum's dumb contracts are turn complete dumb contracts, and Bitcoin's dumb contracts are dumb as rocks contracts, which is why they can deliver more security because there's not much room to to do fancy things. But again, as you said, it's really interesting how. Even with a simple scripting language, you can build some very sophisticated operations. So one of the things that really sent my head spinning on Lightning for a really long time, actually, was the fact that unlike in a traditional Bitcoin transaction, I can't just send money to someone, right? Like I can't send a transaction and it goes to a person. That person actually has to, in the current state of the technology, generate an invoice that I then can pay to. But I can't just be like, send this to Andreas's address because Andreas doesn't really have an address in the Lightning Network in the same way. So there's this idea called Sphinx Sense, which um, has been getting talked about more and more, which aims to largely solve that problem by removing the need for the preemptively generated invoices from the receiving party to actually exist you know, before a payment can be made. There are also some interesting privacy implications on this. Andreas, can you take us through it? Yeah, so Sphinx is basically a, a development on the onion-routed, source-routed mechanism that is used in Lightning. So Lightning today predominantly uses, or at the moment uses, a source-routed mechanism, whereby the sender of the payment decides how the payment will be routed to the recipient. But in order to do that, they get an invoice from the recipient and that invoice uh, basically tells the sender how much to pay and who to pay. Who to pay in Lightning Network is your node's public key. How much to pay is, a, is an amount in milli satoshis. And then with that information, the sender can construct a route to find how to get that payment to the destination. This gives us a lot of privacy because when the route can be constructed in this way, it's private. But the problem is the recipient has to request a specific amount with an invoice. Sphinx routing, together with another technique called rendezvous routing, is basically an evolution of this routing mechanism that allows the two parties to essentially build the route together. And a couple of things emerge from that. One is that you can route to an intermediary node. This is called rendezvous routing, where you say, hey, in order to pay me, all you have to do is get it to this public node that you can route to. And when you get it there, give them this encrypted blob and they'll know how to get it the rest of the way. And don't worry your pretty little head with those details. <laughs> that allows you to hide behind a public node and have maybe private unpublished channels with that node. And everybody who wants to route to you, they know how to get there, but they don't know from there how it gets to you. You give them an encrypted blob, which is the final delivery instructions, right? Mm -hmm. It's a bit like saying, deliver it to the post office, and here's a sealed letter with instructions to the postman who will deliver it for the last mile, but you don't need to know where it's going, right? Yeah. A quick question. So that sealed letter, 
does that have to correspond to instructions you've already left with that node? Or can this just go to any node? It can go to any node. It basically, the sealed letter is, is it's exactly the same as the routes that would be constructed because all of the routes are done in sealed letters. Each time you give a payment to the next node in line, you also give them an encrypted blob that only they can read that tells them how to move it one step closer. And then when they move it one step closer, they give an encrypted blob that they can't read to the next recipient and keep going. The difference is that in the traditional source routing, in the original source routing, all of those encrypted blobs that had every step of the instructions were created by the sender. And only the sender really knows the entire route in the beginning. And then each node only knows how to get it one step further and passes on these encrypted blobs for everybody else to figure it out. The only difference with the rendezvous is that the sender creates the series of encrypted blobs that get it to the rendezvous point, but they take an encrypted blob with the rest of the route from the recipient and just package it so that when it gets to the end of the to the rendezvous point, then there is another route in there that the recipient sent, mm. which is like the previous routes, but the sender doesn't know what it is in this particular case. So it's like, you do the routing this far, I'll do the routing from then on. Instead of you figure out how to get it all the way to me without telling any of the intermediaries, you give them each a blind package. Now it's like basically a more collaborative thing. So that's rendezvous routing. The other nice thing is that with, with Sphinx routing is that you can do this trick whereby the secret that's part of the invoice is sent to the recipient as part of the routing so that the recipient doesn't need to create an invoice in the first place. And that way you can send an arbitrary amount to a recipient address, which is basically, it will look similar to a lightning address, which identifies a destination node or even a rendezvous point without an invoice and without having to communicate with the recipient. Thank you for that explanation, Andreas. I think that that did actually make a lot of sense here. So basically what you're saying is that in the current state of the technology, if I want you to send me some money, then I need to generate an invoice. But that invoice really just has all the information that you need to build the entire route. And you can only send me the amount that I've specifically requested because I've essentially given you the end point of the route. But what the new version does is it makes it so that I actually write my own sealed envelope and I send it to you. And then when you create the route, you include that sealed envelope such that when it gets to the end of your part of the route, that node or that hop opens up my instructions that you as the sender never saw. So that's the rendezvous part, right? Yes. Okay. And the Sphinx part is that normally in an invoice, there's a hash, which is a hash of a secret that allows each participants in the route to redeem the previous payments and forward the next payment. So you basically set up a series of promises which says, listen, if you figure out what the secret is, then I will give you the payments because at that point I will figure out what the secret is, which ensures that the person before me will give me the payment and they'll do that because once they figure out what the secret is, they will get paid and they'll get paid because the person before them will have the secret, so they will get paid, so everybody gets paid down the road, right? Yes. Okay, and that's this whole thing. It's a big line of trust where nobody wants to trust each other until it's so certain that they're not going to lose out, that everybody trusts each other at once, basically. Yes, and basically what you do is you set up these promises from the, the sender to the recipient, 
And then when the recipient receives the final promise, they give the secret, which redeems the final promise, which then the person won before the final now has the secret so they can give it to the person before them, which redeems that promise, which can give it to the person before them, which redeems that promise, and it rolls <laughs> all the way back to the sender. So it's a two-step process. First, you lay out the route with a series of promises, and then you redeem all of those promises with a secret flowing backwards until the payments go through. And so that's how it works today, but that requires a promise being communicated to the sender, which is the invoice. With Sphinx routing, you can eliminate that step. So with Sphinx routing, effectively what you're doing is the sender gets the routing information, but doesn't actually have an amount and then creates their own effective invoice on the sender side that then they, they can use to send funds to that person, even though it's not requesting a specific amount and they didn't actually generate the invoice. It's just changing who can generate that invoice, really. Yes, it, that's a simplistic way. It's more complicated than that, but that will certainly do. From the user perspective, none of this matters. From the user perspective... And that's what I was going to say, actually, Andreas, is that like the thing that, that this conversation, this entire conversation, both last episode and this episode, continues to emphasize to me is that I'm so happy that this is software and that we're talking about sort of the how it actually you know, works in sort of broad terms, but that this is stuff that as a user, I never have to care about. I just have to wait for it to be ready and then I just don't have to think about it. Yeah, I'm grateful for that, too. As a user, you have a Lightning wallet, you scan the QR code of the person you want to pay, and you send them a payment. So it starts behaving exactly like a Bitcoin wallet does today, and you can't tell the difference. The only difference is it clears immediately, instantaneously. It's full settlement without any waiting time, fully confirmed immediately, and it can do very, very small amounts for no fee. Yeah, and this is a privacy upgrade. Uh, the Sphinx routing is a privacy upgrade and it's also uh, a usability upgrade. And it kind of combines with uh, the last one that we talked about, which is dual funded channels to decrease the need for trust, you know, to make it so that trust is not required. Yes. Another part that I think is particularly great about that is, you know, we've been running the LTB lightning tips kind of experiments since the uh, spring of uh, last year. And our Amazon bill is usually higher to operate the server that is actually running the tip server in order to generate those invoices when someone wants to come along and give us a tip than we receive in tips. So something like Sphinx Send effectively eliminates the need to operate a server in order to receive tips because you can just put your information out there and people generate invoices locally, right? Yeah, but you'd still want to be running your own node. So you could outsource that function to someone else. If you're not paying Amazon to do it on your own, essentially, well, partly owned server of yours that you control at least somewhat, then you're basically outsourcing that function to someone else. And that requires a degree of third-party trust. So the rule, not your keys, not your coin, still applies in Lightning. And I would say that the problem here is that you're not making enough money on tips and other reasons to be running a Lightning node. But sure. if you were, then it's totally worth it. And you want to be running your own. So we've got a couple more topics to uh, hit, and then we'll be done with our lightning update for at least a couple of months. This one, again, comes to us from the article, quote, L2 and channel factories. L2 is a protocol first proposed in the April 2018 paper from Blockstream C Lightning Team and Lightning Labs Roast Beef. In the current implementation of the Lightning Network, a user can lose funds by restoring from an outdated backup. Broadcasting these older balances is equivalent to cheating, and users are penalized by forfeiting their funds. 
Most importantly, L2 makes backups less dangerous and watchtowers, which we'll be talking about next, more efficient as only the latest state needs to be stored and not prior states. So let's start to break this down a little bit because this winds up being a little bit more technical than I, I kind of want it to be. As it stands right now, you know, Andreas, in one of the earlier segments, we talked about how if someone tries to like it, if, if you open a channel to someone and then they don't open a channel back to you and you were expecting them to, then you have to wait three days before you can actually recover those funds. If they don't let you close that channel or they don't act on that channel, they stop responding to managing the channel, then you, you have to close it. And to close it, you have to wait until the time lock expires. So I reached the point where I finally understood payment channels. And I, I was triumphant. I was like, I understand payment channels. And I was having a conversation with someone in the Lightning team. I was like, finally understand payment channels. And they're like, oh, uh, Poondryzer payment channels? I'm like, what? There's more than one type? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's like three different types now. So Poondryzer payment channels. When people say payment channels and when they say Lightning, what they're talking about is the original paper published in 2014 by Joseph Boone and Thaddeus Taj Dreiger. And they postulated a mechanism for doing unidirectional payment channels that are connected together in a routable network that they called the Lightning Network. That was the foundational paper, like the Satoshi paper. This is the paper that started the Lightning Network. Poondraja payment channels are that formulation. And Poondraja payment channels require a game-theoretical tit-for-tat penalty system, which is basically this. When you open a payment channel, then keep sending update transactions, commitment transactions. And these commitment transactions are, hey, we now have two Bitcoin on my side, one Bitcoin on yours, okay? Yeah, we'll make another payment. Okay, now we have 1.8 Bitcoin on my side, 1.2 Bitcoin on yours. So we've moved some balance around. Great, great. And so you keep updating. And as you update, what you're doing is you're sending back and forth these signed transactions that commit to the latest state. So they contain the current balance of the two parties in the channel that both parties agree to. And at any point in time, either party can take that commitment transaction, broadcast it to the Bitcoin network, effectively closing the channel and getting paid back whatever their remaining balance was, while at the same time, if they broadcast that transaction, the other party as part of that transaction also gets paid back whatever their balance was, everybody walks away happy. The only transactions you have that you can commit are the ones that pay you and the other party the correct balance. There's one problem, though. If you broadcast an old state, that's a problem. So like, if I have a transaction that said that I had two Bitcoin on my side, but the current one says I only have 1.8, why don't I just broadcast the old one? Then I get paid two. The other person only gets paid one Bitcoin. I've stolen 0.2 Bitcoin from them, right? Mm -hmm. So you cheat by broadcasting an old state. So in the formulation of Poondryzer channels, there's a penalty. And that penalty is every time you make a new commitment state, you swap keys that allow you to burn the previous commitment state. And what that does is if someone tries to cheat by publishing an old state, you have 24 hours to double spend that with another set of keys that not only gives you back the refund, but then you take their balance too as a penalty. Meaning that if someone tries to cheat, you penalize them with a transaction that gives you both balances to you. Not only do they not get to steal some of your balance, 
but they open the door by cheating to you stealing all of the balance from both sides of the channel. And does that, do you have to notice that that happened or does it happen automatically? Well, that's the key, which is that in order for you to exercise your penalty within 24 hours, what you have to do is you have to keep watching the blockchain and you're watching for a cheat transaction, which is a commitment transaction that's publishing a state that should have been revoked. Now, this may be done accidentally. Occasionally, a, a node will get disconnected, it'll get reconnected. It hasn't seen the latest commitment transaction. It thinks that the balance is still what it used to be, publishes an old state, and then gets penalized. That shouldn't happen, but it does occasionally. But the point is, this requires you to be vigilant. And by vigilant, that means watching the blockchain for a cheat. And if the cheat happens, penalizing them. You can outsource this function to another node called a watchtower. And what a watchtower does is for a small fee, you give it all of the penalizing transactions um, and you tell it what to watch for. And it sits there and watches. If it sees a cheat transaction, it executes one of the penalties, which not only gets you the entire balance of the channel, but also pays the watchtower for their services. So when they punish a cheat, they get paid a bit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. That's great, but there's some privacy considerations because the watchtower gets to see at least part of the transaction if they execute a penalty. They have to be online all of the time. And, you know, the game theory is a bit complicated. Now, what if instead you could revoke states such as the old commitment transaction was no longer valid and that's L2? And L2, the scientific name of L2, which, by the way, is is spelt E-L-T-O-O. So you'll, that's how you search for it. It's not... Letter L number two, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's E-L-T-O-O. But of course, it, it stands for second layer, right? L2 channels are officially called Decker, Russell, Austin, Tokun. So Christian Decker from Blockstream, Rusty Russell from Blockstream, and... Laulu Osantakun, roast beef as he's known from Lightning Labs, wrote the paper on L2. L2 uses a very interesting formulation, which is a new type of signature called a SIG hash no input. This has not been implemented in Bitcoin. It will be implemented as part of the SegWit upgrade for Schnorr signatures and other things, which is scheduled for the end of this year to mid-2020. And at that point, once that new signature hash type is added to Bitcoin's blockchain, we can implement L2 channels. They're much more efficient. You don't need to keep all of the penalty transactions in revoked commitment states. You can just keep the latest, and that latest allows you to close a channel and prevent someone from cheating. So it massively increases the efficiency of the system. Andreas, how does this tie into channel factories? It doesn't. Channel factories are a slightly different concept. So you know how when you make a payment channel, a payment channel is a two of two multi-sig. That's the simplest thing to understand is that you're locking the funds into a two of two and then you're deciding how to allocate the balances between you by swapping transactions off chain where you both have to sign because it's a two of two. So you collaboratively update the balance. So that's a two-way payment channel. But there's no limitation. We only have to do two of two. What if we do five of five and now the channel isn't like a pipe that is connecting two points, but instead it's like a pool that's in the middle of five different nodes. Like a starfish. 
like a starfish, exactly. So anyone can modify the balance vis-a-vis anyone else in the five of five, as long as everybody signs for it. It's a five-way channel. Now, the example where you would use this, the most likely example, is where you have some very critical centralized nodes that are doing a lot of traffic with each other. So this is very large merchant, very large wallets, exchange nodes that are on the Lightning Network, where they need to do a lot of volume, a lot of liquidity, but they mostly need to do that with a handful of other nodes, right? Lightning Network will have many parts of it that are very decentralized, but it will also have some parts that are a bit more centralized. And just like you have very large wallets on the Bitcoin blockchain that are controlled by exchanges, you're likely going to have very large nodes on the Lightning Network that are controlled by merchants, exchanges, and large wallet companies. So those nodes are likely to be doing a lot of their transactions with peers of their size rather than with tiny little nodes that are doing retail stuff. And so it makes more sense to have maybe a five or even a 10-way channel between them that is much more efficient to operate. Andreas, that kind of sounds like the Lightning Network version of the Liquid Sidechain project that Blockstream has been working on. It is. It is. Interesting. Which actually is really ironic because for a very long time, the conspiracy theory has been that Blockstream engineered a limitation on the Bitcoin block size in order to promote their own competing technology, which is Lightning. But of course, that's not true because Lightning isn't their technology. They're one of three participants in it and not even the most important one. Liquid is their technology. And guess what? Lightning competes directly with Liquid. So promoting Lightning for Blockstream is antithetical to their profit motive to keep Liquid as the better exchange between exchanges. And so channel factories in the long term obsolete the need for liquid. Okay, so I have a question. I can see how it would be more efficient to have sort of this five-way starfish channel instead of just multiple two-way channels. Yeah. But does that kind of create a fractionation or a splintering of the Lightning Network into like little clusters or you know like does it become its kind of its own network if there's just a lot of transactions happening on one of these circles it does and that's the other thing we have to keep thinking of the lightning network is in its essence and its design an internetwork it's a network of networks just like the internet is which means that within it it will have different degrees of clustering and hierarchy Effectively, channel factories are almost like a VPN. It's almost like creating an overlay network on top of the Lightning Network where you can have the collaboration on these channels by, let's say, five parties. So there will be parts of the network that naturally are more centralized because they represent more centralized economic interests. And there are other parts of the network that are very, very decentralized. And most importantly, privacy is preserved across the entire network so that those pressures of centralization don't affect privacy and don't affect censorship resistance. But, you know, the Lightning Network is going to become a complex, multi-layered network with different densities and different degrees of uh, clustering at different scales compared to a completely scale-free mesh network where everything is completely level. 
that doesn't naturally emerge because the economic incentives are not there to for that, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to see some degree of a Pareto distribution within there. Yeah. And I don't know if this question is really relevant, but I'm just kind of curious, like, so because there's privacy with the amount of the transactions and sort of like where they're going to, like there's privacy on that. So you won't be able to really map it out as you would with the Bitcoin blockchain. But will there be a way to sort of visualize like the hotspots or the different clusters within the Lightning Network? Only the public ones and only at first. Meaning that the bigger lightning gets, the less visibility we have into its operation. When there's only a handful of nodes and you can see the traffic flowing from the perspective of one of them, right? Then you're seeing a pretty big percentage of the network. You're seeing the flows. You can make some educated guesses about what's happening in the rest of the network that you're not seeing. When there's 5,000 nodes and you control 10 of them, now you're seeing a very small percentage of what's happening, and most of it's invisible to you. When there's 5 million nodes, then you're seeing even a smaller fraction. So because inevitably there is still a lot less centralization in something like Lightning Workword than than there is on something like the internet, as Lightning gets bigger, more and more of these transactions effectively disappear from view. More and more of the channels are private, not advertised public channels. More and more of the routing happens with rendezvous and things like that. And you have channel factories in the background that are invisible to the outside. You're going to end up with a network that becomes more and more and more opaque, which actually improves privacy. Next week is the second uh, semi-annual meeting of the various teams that are working on Lightning development so that they can continue the discussion on developing the Bolt standard and creating uh, new interoperable standards for many of these new developments. So all of the things we just talked about, Wombology, L2, Atomic Multipath, Sphinx Routing, Roundable Routing, et cetera, et cetera, all of these were decided and standardized and come to an agreement in terms of roadmap in the last semi-annual meeting of uh, the Lightning developers. The next one is next week in Argentina, and they're going to probably pull some more rabbits out of hats because there's a lot more happening on the mailing list, and there's a lot more things in discussion that we didn't even touch on. So we scratched the surface. We talked about the things that were agreed on six months ago that now have names, and are proceeding towards production with specific standards. And next week, in their meeting in Argentina, they're probably going to create a whole bunch of new things that we haven't even talked about. So once again, this is a space that moves incredibly fast. Lightning is moving at three or four times the speed of Bitcoin's base blockchain development because innovation can move a lot faster at higher layers and you don't need as much coordination and conservatism because you get the security from the base layer. So this is really interesting. Things are really speeding up and heating up in the Lightning development space. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin was brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. Oh, and use coupon code LTB half off if it's your first time.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Dave and Adam, with music by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. Questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.